ID the Future, a podcast about evolution and intelligent design. Hello, I'm your host, Eric Anderson, and today on our show, we're joined again by Dr. Michael Denton to continue discussing his excellent new book, The Miracle of Man. Denton is author of numerous works, including the acclaimed Evolution, A Theory, and Crisis and the Privileged Species series. He's a senior fellow with Discovery Institute Center for Science and Culture and holds both an MD as well as a PhD in biochemistry. Welcome back, Mike. Hi, yes. Good to be back again, Eric. Thanks. So, Mike, last time when we wrapped up, we were talking about the reactivity of oxygen to enable metabolic activity and the transport of oxygen throughout our bodies via the circulatory system and the wonderful molecule hemoglobin, which has a particular ability to handle iron atoms to transport oxygen. Today, what I'd like to do is home in on the aerobic reaction necessary for large multicellular organisms such as ourselves, as well as the properties of the electromagnetic spectrum and the particular fine-tuning of our atmosphere that make all of this possible. Maybe we can start with the oxidation of carbon. So in your book, you draw a comparison between the oxidation reaction that takes place in our bodies and the oxidation reaction that releases heat in something like a forest fire. What's similar about these two reactions and what's different? Well, what's similar about the reactions is, I mean, they're both, as it were, oxidations. And in, in wood, in a campfire or a forest fire, the oxygen reacts with the carbon and hydrogen atoms in the wood, resulting in the formation of carbon dioxide and water and the release of enormous amounts of energy. So that's combustion, uh, which is oxidizing or, or burning wood, or more specifically, the reaction of oxygen with the carbon and hydrogen within the wood. Well, in the body, we get energy from the oxidation of foodstuffs, which contain also carbon and hydrogen atoms and sugars and fats. And the reaction is essentially the same. The oxygen reacts again with the carbon and hydrogen atoms in the foodstuffs, generating carbon dioxide and water and generating also a great deal of energy. So basically, the the fundamental reaction in combustion and in respiration is exactly the same. The oxidation of carbon and hydrogen atoms in the wood and the oxidation of carbon and hydrogen atoms in the foodstuffs. Some idea of the vigor of this reaction is, is, is seen in a bushfire um, when you can get catastrophic uncontrolled fire which can burn thousands of hectares of um, vegetation and forest in, in, a, in a matter of a few days. The reaction itself yields more energy than any other chemical reaction available to carbon-based life. One author described it as the reaction which empowers the world, because one version of it empowers the metabolism of the body, and the other, as it were, empowers our industrial machine. Well, it did before the um, beginning of the electric age. But from the beginning of the Industrial Revolution until recently, all, all industry was empowered by combustion, the oxidation of carbon and hydrogen atoms. Yeah, and still plenty of that going on, um, even, <laughs> yes, to, even yes, to produce yeah. electricity. So, yeah. But in terms of the, the reaction, you know, thankfully, we don't combust like a forest fire. What's going on differently in the body? Yeah. That Yeah, well, basically... First of all, just one point which we might discuss a bit later on. In fact, basically, oxygen um, is an interesting atom in the sense that it's, it's reluctant to react at, temperature, at, low, at ambient temperatures. And this is because of a, something technical in the electron shells called a spin restriction. So the 
oxygen is a bit reluctant to react. What activates it in a fire is heat. Mm -hmm. And then the heat activates it continually as the fire progresses and the fire becomes self-sustaining. But at body temperature, oxygen is really relatively unreactive. And in the body, it's, it's activated by transition metals, which are able to donate one electron at a time to oxygen and commence its reduction and activation. But this is slow and can be controlled by the body. So while in the campfire, the heat of the fire causes what you might say uncontrollable activation of oxygen and the thing is self-sustaining, in the body, the activation of oxygen can be controlled because at an ambient temperatures, its activation requires highly specific actions of the transition metals. This slow burning in the body, if you want to put it like that, allows us to extract the energy from oxidations to generate it, for instance, ATP, which is in turn used to energize the whole body for movement, for nervous transmission, for thinking, and then all the chemical reactions in the cell. Yeah. So that's, but that's the basic difference. So one is, one is fast and uh, activated by heat. One is slow and there's a controlled activation in the body using the transition metals. Yeah, and that control seems to be the the real key for me. I mean, instead of, and also instead of only producing heat in the body, as you mentioned, much of the energy is used to produce ATP, which can then be safely transported yeah. elsewhere in the cell and used where needed. So it's kind of a really, um, it, yeah, you know, almost hand, handling things almost at an individual molecular or even atomic level to extract the energy in the way that the body can utilize it in a controlled fashion. Yeah, the energy of oxidation is stored in ATP and released to drive the chemistry of the cell and many other activities such as movement, thinking, and so forth. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And I think in one of your prior books, Mike, you had talked about the, one of my favorite uh, sets of machines, which is the electron transport chain. And that's Is that involved here as well in terms of uh, getting the hydrogen ions, the protons back across the membrane to help drive the ATP synthesis? Well, yes, the um, the flow, as it were, the, the pull of oxygen on electrons pulls them down electric gradient in the electron transport chains. That drop in energy is used to basically drive protons across the inner mitochondrial membrane. And these, and, and it, it creates a store of protons in, in, in between the inner and outer membranes in the mitochondria. And this protons builds up and then eventually it flows back generating ATP. It's an incredible story, this. <laughs> it's really yeah. amazing. Yeah, it's um, really remarkable. Yeah. So basically, uh, yes, the oxygen exerts the, the pull on the electrons which roll down the electron transport chains. And as they, as they dissipate the energy in rolling down towards oxygen, towards the, as it were, which is the terminus of the tr chain, basically the protons are transported through the membrane, build up in considerable quantities outside the membrane, and then they flow back. So it's yeah, it's quite it's quite it's quite an it's yeah quite an, ending in ending in this oxygen, which we'll talk about a little bit more because it's it's an important part of this. But the oxygen um, being joined by to the hydrogen to produce water, which is expelled as part of that reaction, right? Which is why right. we sweat when we go out and run run several miles. Yeah, yeah, 
Yeah, yeah. very, very interesting. Okay, so th- so I guess at a high level, as we kind of step back, then we could say that these are, are uh, similar reactions, but there's a lot more going on in the body that really uh, makes this a useful and controlled process, uh, yeah. you know, throughout. That's great. So the, oxi- the, o- yeah, the oxidation is highly controlled in the body. It's slow burning, whereas, in fact, in the forest fire, it's out of control. Yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And some people might might say, Mike, wait a minute, there's other ways of generating energy for biological systems, such as through the glycolytic pathway. So t- tell us just briefly, what is the glycolytic pathway and why do you think that this is not suitable for large organisms? All organisms have a pathway um, for generating some ATP, which is the glycolytic pathway. Basically, it's also called, called fermentation, actually. It involves 10 enzymic steps which start with glucose and end with a substance called pyruvic acid. And during these steps, uh, energy is uh, also um, extracted from the reactions, and that's used to generate two ATP molecules. And all organisms do have uh, the glycolytic pathway, also the Emden-Meyerhoff pathway, it's sometimes called. Mm. It's called also fermentation because, in fact, pyruvic acid can be converted to ethanol, and hence, hence the term fermentation. Okay. So it gives us two molecules of ATP, but that's not very much. When you fully oxidize glucose all the way to CO2 and water, you get 30 molecules of ATP. Which so is an order, an order of magnitude, yeah. yeah. That's right, yeah. So basically with glycolysis, you do get some ATP, and all organisms can get ATP using glycolysis. Many other organisms have other ways of getting ATP, there's a group of bacteria called methanogens, and what they do is they reduce CO2 to methane to get energy. Other microbes reduce sulfate to sulfide, mm-hmm. and, and so forth. And there's, there's a vast number. It's really quite remarkable. I mean, virtually every single possible <laughs> chemical <laughs> reaction, um, possible, given the minerals <laughs> you know, present on the earth, Virtually every single chemical reaction is actually utilized by some exotic group of bacteria to get energy. But there's a problem. As I say, glycolysis gives us two ATPs. Full oxidation gives us 30. And most of these other reactions also, although they do give ATP, it's not as much as as you get with oxidations. So basically, um, and it's not enough to, so as you describe it, to fly, swim, build rockets, or explore the stars. <laughs> Highly complex organisms like ourselves need a lot of extra energy to do all these various things, move, think, and as I say, mm-hmm. build a rocket to the stars. And the only way you can get that amount of energy is by the full oxidation of the glucose all the way down to CO2 and, and water, which is what yeah. occurs in the mitochondria. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I was just thinking as you were talking there, even on some of these other pathways like sulfur, you know, you've got to get it. The great thing about oxygen is it's available in the ambient air for us. It's easily absorbable, all those kinds of things that we've talked about earlier. So, yeah. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Okay. So there's, um, let me switch gears here a little bit because one of my hobbies is astronomy and I love to um, follow what's going on in that field. 
And I know there's a lot of interest right now in searching for life elsewhere in the universe, the entire field of astrobiology that's sprung up over the last couple of decades, which is devoted in part to thinking about what we should be looking for as we seek life elsewhere. So while small microbial life might be possible in many different environments with some of these other reactions you talked about, what do you think we should be looking for if we're interested in advanced intelligent life? Well, I think there's a general consensus now that if you're looking for advanced complex carbon-based life on alien planets, on exoplanets, you'd look for oxygen in the atmosphere of the planet. Now, I'm not sure, I'm not, you might be more up to date on this than I am, but I'm not sure whether you can see oxygen in these atmospheres, but I think probably there's some clever mechanisms by which you can detect it. Yeah, the spectral analysis ought to be able to draw that out, yeah. Okay, so there are ways of detecting it. Well, if you did find oxygen in the atmosphere of a of um, an exoplanet, you would have perhaps, uh, that's certainly consistent with the possibility of there being even intelligent life on that planet, yeah. So that's that's obviously something that's going to be, um, people are going to right. try. Right, and, and is, I think in the book you mentioned that a small trace amount probably wouldn't cut it. If we're looking for large beings like ourselves or large organisms, there needs to be a reasonable... Uh, Fraction, so that the partial pressure of Some people have have argued, uh, there's quite a few papers along these lines. Basically, yes, you would need to have an atmosphere enriched in oxygen, perhaps not quite as much as we have here, but you know, reasonably enriched in oxygen. Mm -hmm. Very small amounts of oxygen, probably, as you say, that wouldn't cut, (laughs) wouldn't work. Yeah, You you need you need a lot of oxygen to support advanced intelligent life like ourselves yeah and just just to remind our listeners we've got what 20 and 21 percent in our atmosphere something like that yeah that's right yeah okay um, i don't know what the cutoff point is there's a, a one or two papers i think it's for beings of our size and complexity i think it's um it's about half half the oxygen that we have in our atmosphere you need that much to have beings like us, yeah. So, so looking for something around maybe ten yeah. percent at least. Yeah. Is, is, you need a lot, yeah. That's right. Yeah. yeah. Okay. All right, and then uh, as I was reading your book, I was struck by the fact. Let's talk about this atmosphere then, as we're talking about oxygen. In reading your book, I was struck by the fact that green plants, driven by sunlight, provide two things. They provide both the oxygen we need as well as the reduced carbon compounds that eventually need to get oxidized, which is pretty yeah. amazing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's it's enormously convenient reaction. <laughs> yeah. So basically, yes, photosynthesis gives us what we need to oxidize and it gives us the oxygen to do it. Yeah, yeah. that's correct. Yeah. yeah that's and of amazing. course, basically, we only have photosynthesis because of some very, very remarkable aspects to sunlight and to the atmosphere, which work together to provide the, um, the exact environmental conditions for, for photosynthesis to occur. right well tell tell us a little bit about that though i mean with in terms of sunlight you're talking about the region of the electromagnetic spectrum that our sun yes well here we're touching on something really extraordinary actually um the first thing to r- remind oneself is that the electromagnetic spectrum stretches from intense gamma rays to radio waves and the gamma rays are the wavelength of the gamma ra- in the gamma radiation area is incredibly small. <laughs> it's like fractions and fractions of, um, of a nanometer. Whereas, mm-hmm. of course, radio waves can be, in fact, the wavelength can be kilometers from crest to crest. 
So this is a fantastic range, at least 10 to the 25 orders of magnitude between the highly energetic and very small wavelength um, region in the, from gamma all the way to the radio waves. And within this immense range, this immense range, there's only one tiny range which is suitable for photochemistry, and that is the visual region. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's an almost infinitesimal fraction of the entire range. And yet um, the sun puts out, I think, nearly a half of its radiation in that tiny range. The tiny range is useful for photochemistry, for photosynthesis. And not only that, the sun puts out another type of radiation, infrared radiation or heat. And that also is in a tiny, tiny adjacent region of the electromagnetic spectrum. So the sun gifts us with the, the, right, the right energy for photosynthesis and the right amount of energy to keep the earth warm, to keep the temperature, average temperature well above freezing on a planet like the earth. The sun puts out just what you need and the range of, and, and the fraction of the vast range in which it's putting out is almost inconceivably tiny. I mean, you can't conceive of it. I, I think I said that, in fact, somewhere that, in fact, uh, if you imagine a, a pack of cards stretching from the Earth all, all the way past the galaxy of Andromeda, and you select one of those cards out of that vast stack, that's the equivalent of the electromagnetic radiation useful for life is like one of those cards. But the most ama- amazing thing is that the atmosphere incredibly lets through the same. <laughs> so you were talking about photochemical reactions. Yeah. Um, just for our listeners and so that we're all up to speed on this, what you're talking about is the sunlight is able to actually drive a chemical reaction at well, basically ambient temperatures, right? The energetics of certain key chemical reactions can take place at the temperatures that we have on Earth with sunlight. Is that, am I understanding that right? That's correct. And the, yeah. the wavelengths outside of the visual region in gamma, UV, X-ray, or, in, or on, the, on the other end of the other, the, the longer ones, uh, long infrared, uh, microwave, radio waves, the shorter wavelengths are dangerous to life. Yeah. They're destructive. They're too energetic, whereas the longer wavelengths from the far infrared on out to radio waves, they're too weak. So, right. <laughs> so, we, ne- so we need an energy source that's, you know, Goldilocks, right? It's not too strong. It's not that's too weak. Exactly. It's got to be just right in order to do these key chemical reactions at ambient yeah. temperatures. And okay. yet, if I'm understanding this, what you're saying, through a completely, totally unrelated a set of physical parameters, meaning the gravity collapsing matter into stars and producing a star like ours, totally unrelated set of parameters, the sun happens to emit a great portion of its energy in that visible light and near infrared. Is that is that that's, right? That's correct. Yeah. I mean the, sounds, the process is pretty suspicious. The process <laughs> the processes <laughs> generate planetary systems and suns are totally unrelated to the potential benefit that living things might derive from it. Yeah. yeah. From, from the key chemical yeah. reactions. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so now tell us about the atmosphere, because there's a couple aspects of the atmosphere that also have to be finely tuned, if you will, or just right for this to work. Well, first of all, if visual light, if the sunlight is to empower photosynthesis, it has to reach the ground because, mm-hmm. you know, 
plants are on the ground um, and all the algae is in the sea, but it has to reach the surface of the earth. And amazingly, it's, 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 I, 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 sorry, I, I, I'm always amazed when I, every, even though <laughs> how many times I talk about this, I just can hardly get over it. It's incredible. The visual light of the sun gets right down to the ground. The atmosphere is almost entirely transparent to visual light. Mm-hmm. And yet X-rays, gamma rays, the bad stuff, the energetic stuff is nearly all absorbed by the atmosphere and so forth. So <laughs> it's not just that it, it gets through. The bad stuff is often, mm-hmm. most of the bad stuff is, is absorbed on either side of the visual spectrum. So the, the atmosphere lets through the same tiny, tiny part of the electromagnetic spectrum, the useful part, right down to the surface of the Earth. It's a re- I mean, it's a remarkable. It's, so then, in other words, it's like pulling two cards. <laughs> You've got a stack of cards stretching to Andromeda. You pull one out and you say, that's great. That's just what I want. <laughs> and you pull another one out and you say, that's also what I want. <laughs> yeah. So that has got to be, I think, one of the most, if you want to call it a coincidence, it's highly suggestive of design, of course, but if you want to call it a coincidence, it's got to be the, the most extraordinary coincidence in, that I'm aware of in the whole of nature, in the whole of mm. science. Mm. It's just what? incredible. Yeah, yeah. yeah that's, that's really remarkable. And, and there's a related coincidence, if you will, right next to it, right? Because the <laughs> atmosphere also absorbs enough infrared to keep us from having wild temperature swings, right? That's right, yes. The atmosphere acts as a blanket, and in, in the daytime when the sun's shining, it absorbs the incoming heat radiation, which stops you from boiling. And at night, it's a, it's a nice, it's a blanket. It's a sort of, it's a sleeping bag. <laughs> so you, and, it, and, it, and it retains the heat in the atmosphere. But the extraordinary thing about the difference between the transparency for visual light and the partial absorbance of the, of the infrared is that just you can just the, the, these are two adjacent regions in the electromagnetic spectrum. You swap them around, and it's a catastrophe. Mm. <laughs> if you swap them around, you start absorbing the visual light; it doesn't get to the ground, and um, oh, right. you, let, <laughs> you, you you rid yourself of the blanket. So you get hot and cold. Every, the sun shines red hot. Sun goes behind a cloud or something, and suddenly it's very cold again. Yeah. So and and it's not just that. So the actual amount of the, the heat that's absorbed by the atmosphere, it's not too much and it's not too little. So again, it's a Goldilocks thing. So that you've got Goldilocks in the visual region and you've got Goldilocks in the adjacent infrared. And um, the only, I mean, they look as if this was arranged specifically for carbon-based life on a planet like the Earth. Yeah. Um, I mean, the coincidences here are extraordinary. And what's that's another thing worth pointing out is that, in fact, the, the gases in the atmosphere are inevitably going to be present in any carbon-based atmosphere. You've got oxygen, you've got carbon dioxide, you've got water vapor and so forth. So the gases which are allowing through the light of life and the sufficient heat to keep the earth warm are exactly the gases you might expect to be on any carbon-based planet. So in the atmosphere of any carbon-based planet, so that's 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 another twist to this to this teleology. It's uh, yeah, yeah. Well, sounding pretty suspicious again. <laughs> well, hey, Mike, I wish we could keep going for another hour, but uh, I really appreciate you being with us to discuss your book. I've personally been really enjoying reading your book, and definitely recommend that our listeners check it out. It's 
it's been a great pleasure. And, and let me just say, Mike, on behalf of everybody who reads your, your work, we're so grateful for your work and all the time and effort you've put in to bring this wonderful information about the remarkable fitness of nature to us and, and just bring the science full circle and humankind back to the center of it all. Yeah, well, really, it's, um, I think that, in fact, the book represents a serious scholarly first step towards a scientific reformulation of the anthropocentric conception of nature. Mm -hmm. It's not the final step. Uh, there will be other steps to come. But I think the, the trend is now quite evident that there's something very special about us and about our form of life and so forth. And um, there's more to come. I'm sure it's more to come. Excellent. Well, this is a fantastic first step, as you call it. I definitely recommend that everybody check it out. Thank, thanks so much for being with us, Mike. Okay. It was great to um, talk again, actually, Eric. Thank you for joining us at ID the Future. To learn more about the remarkable fitness of nature for beings such as ourselves, order your copy of The Miracle of Man today at outlets like Amazon and Barnes & Noble. Join us again soon as we continue to explore the evidence for design in the world and consider sharing a link with a friend. For ID the Future, I'm Eric Anderson. Thanks for listening. Visit us at idthefuture.com and intelligentdesign.org. This program is Copyright Discovery Institute and recorded by Center for Science and Culture.